Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's February 3rd, 1634, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali. The Retrospectors. With a cast of more than 800 people and a budget that would be the modern equivalent of three million pounds, the theatrical extravaganza The Triumph of Peace, which was performed today in history in 1634, was not exactly an Amdram production. Rather, it's regarded as the most extravagant mask of its period, whose parade component alone was so spectacular that the king himself ordered that the procession turn back around and go past him one more time. <laughs> yeah, I- I'm going to be honest and say up front, I did did not know until researching this what a mask was. No, M-A-S-Q-U-E. Despite having a degree in English literature, <laughs> I somehow <laughs> didn't know. I thought maybe some kind of like ball or definitely an event, but I didn't realise it was much closer to theatre than that. As you're saying, it was really a performance that you watched. It was interactive and it was a happening, but for the most part, really, it's a play with music. I mean, it's nothing new under the sun, is it? It is just a play, but it was a certain kind of play that was put on by royal patronage to which every important person was invited and money was no object. Yeah. Yeah, it was basically the 17th century equivalent of immersive theatre. So the attendees <laughs> would be dressing in costume and mingling with the performers, but the performers would then be bursting into song or recitations or forming these kind of tableaus on stage, which were meant to be an allegory for something. And so the mask had originally emerged as a court entertainment under Henry VIII, but it was kind of fine-tuned under Elizabeth I, who was the one who recognised the potential political capital of this kind of a spectacle. So under her, you saw the emergence of themed masks where the theme was designed to express something positive about the monarch specifically so Mm. either you know they would often use symbolic figures like peace and justice who would come in and sort of be like isn't you know isn't England great right now under this wonderful queen aren't pale people brilliant (laughs) exactly you know they'd use mythological figures characters from fables but it was all obviously designed to an end of impressing upon the spectator how great the monarchy was Yeah, and they came to be broken into two parts. The anti-mask, which was the sort of bacchanalian element where you had a sort of expression of what the world would be like if this gracious, wonderful monarch didn't exist. Mm. Though this bit sounds like the really fun bit. And then came the actual mask itself, and that was to kind of represent the wonderful world that had been created by the monarch themselves. But it really does sound like, even though your description, Rebecca, of it as immersive theatre, I think is right, but it was kind of a bit of everything. It was a bit like opera. It was a bit of a procession. You had this massive march of the cast before the thing started off, and then it descended into a big dance and uh, and feast. So it was kind of a bit of all the different types of entertainment you could possibly imagine. So this particular production, if we can call it that, although it was just for <laughs> one day only, um, The Triumph of Peace, was, I'm not going to try and make this sound modern, like you're just <laughs> going to have to accept this is what they were like, was set in the Piazza of Peace. And the action within the narrative, such as it is, 
uh, focuses on the return to Earth of Irene, Eunomia, and Dyke. Irene represents peace, Eunomia represents law, Dyke represents justice, all of these being mirrors of the current king's divinity. So this is all being done to flatter Charles I. So they are allegorical, but like you were saying about the way Elizabeth set it up, they sort of represent the world as generated by the godlike powers of our wonderful monarch. I mean, I might just nip out for a drink after the anti-mask, to be honest. I am ready for an anti-mask. Don't know about you. But that's the thing. When you were saying about the anti-mask, you're right, that was obviously the fun bit. But I'm pleased that, like, in British humour, all the way back there, there was at least some allowance for, like, satire and fun. It's like, it's the fool in, in the king's court, isn't it? You're allowed to not exactly roast the king, but you're allowed to say, now let's have some fun and, and, and try and reflect what else in the human condition exists. Right. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm pleased that that like, pressure valve was always part of it. <laughs> yeah, the anti-mask is said to have developed into contemporary pantomime, whereas the mask is what became opera, which was meant to be the best distillation of performance art, the, the high quality bit for the people who really mattered. And this one certainly was high quality. I mean, some of the best minds of the time were at work on this, because if you, you can imagine that an event that's being sponsored by the royal family is going to be a pretty well-paying gig, even if it's not necessarily the most creatively exciting one. So this one was staged by Inigo Jones, who is referred to as being an architect, but like architecture wasn't really a, a solidified field then, and interior design didn't really exist. And he was kind of a bit of both. He was most famous for his theatre sets. Um, he did. He basically invented or popularised everything. He basically invented movable scenery, even having a stage curtain that would lift to unveil the action. Um, for one of his earliest masks, now I will warn you, this one hasn't aged great. It was called The Mask of Blackness, and it involved the... Queen and her attendees dancing in blackface. He designed an artificial sea with waves which seemed to move, quote from the time, and six huge sea monsters. So this was going to be an extremely lavish production. Mm. Um, I'll tell you who didn't write it, though, was his longtime collaborator, Ben Johnson, one of the famous playwrights of the era. They'd had this 15-year partnership. Despite being basically frenemies, they had this lively public and private debate as to whether stagecraft or script was the most important thing mm. in theatre. It went backwards and forwards, but it was kind of settled a few years before this when the two of them had this massive fallout and Johnson was dismissed by the royals as their in-house mask writer so they basically (laughs) were like we'll take the spectacle Uh, which meant that this particular mask was not written by Johnson it was written by a guy called James Shirley and the reason he was chosen to write it was that this mask was being sponsored by the four inns of court, which are kind of the historical barristers' associations in England, as, you know, some royal brown nosing. And Shirley happened to just live at one of the inns. He lived at Gray's Inn. Even though he wasn't a lawyer, it was just considered a, you know, a respectable place for a gentleman to set up shop. So he was drawn in to write it. I mean, it wasn't just brown nosing. It was a huge apology act because within these inns of court, this controversialist called William Prynne had dedicated this massive anti-theatre diatribe called the Histrio Maastrix to the inns just prior to this. And it was perceived as this massive insult to the Queen Henrietta Maria. And so this mask was the inns signal of their total rejection of any connection with Prynne's book or his views. The bit that had got him into trouble was his attack within this text on women actors as, quote, notorious whores, which wasn't good because the Queen, as you say, Rebecca, had been in some previous masks. She'd actually <laughs> been an actor. And so there was this idea that someone from the inns of court, a famous barrister, had 
had been attacking the Queen herself. And so this was all of the these these sort of chambers coming together and going, I'm terribly, terribly sorry, uh, <laughs> Your Majesties. Um, here, please accept this £21,000, which was the budget that they contributed to this mask, wow. and take a wonderful £21,000 on a one-day theatre production right. well, in 1634. It, it, yeah. it wasn't quite a one-day one. This is kind of how Queen Henrietta Maria got her own back. She so liked the mask, and I feel like there was maybe a bit of tongue-in-cheek up to this, that she requested a repeat performance ten Apology days later. Apology accepted. You may <laughs> apologise again. You may pay again for yeah. me to watch this twice. And I mean, the final bill was not helped by the fact that there was a tradition that every mask ended with revellers upturning the refreshments tables. That sounds oh. great. <laughs> But it's interesting what you were saying in any case about ladies at all performing in a mask because, of course, they couldn't perform in the public playhouses because mm. people did make that insinuation about women who performed. You know, the female roles in Shakespeare, for example, famously were played by young boys. And so, you know, people used what they had to get what they wanted, didn't they? Any woman who was interested in any kind of performance had to perform in a, literally in a mask, at a mask. Um, and that was the only outlet for that creative expression. And it's kind of like what you were saying about Inigo Jones, Rebecca. He was obviously one of the finest visual minds of his generation. But I don't think he wanted to as you put it, Brown knows the king. I don't think he was into that. He declined a knighthood from Charles I in 1633, perhaps sensing what was coming, folks. Mm. <laughs> Charles I <laughs> didn't stick around too long. Uh, but he was back working on this mask in 1634. So I think really all of the Brown nosing was to facilitate getting the work done within the system he found himself part of. Mm. And that's how it operated in the 17th century, wasn't it? Like either you did stuff the royal family was sponsoring or you did nothing. And although William Shakespeare didn't write any masks that we know of, he did use them as a dramatic device. They occur in The Tempest, Henry VIII, Midsummer Night's Dream. There's a mask performed at a wedding and also in Romeo and Juliet, although that's kind of also a masquerade ball, which is, is sort of a separate but related phenomenon. And actually, the mask in Henry VIII was responsible for the destruction of the original Globe Theatre in 1613 because mm. it began with a cannon being fired and the cannon that was fired unfortunately ignited the roof of the globe and it was burned to the ground. Except if you're thinking that, oh, well, that was the end of masks then. It wasn't. During Cromwell's interregnum, masks continued, despite mm. the fact that the Puritans banned opera. We've got a surviving script from one from 1654, which was performed for the Portuguese ambassador called Cupid and Death. So even when you didn't have a king to perform one to, the tradition still continued. Cromwell wasn't like, let's stop doing masks. Yeah. This you all can, feels a bit pre-revolution. You can continue kissing my ass, everyone. That's, <laughs> that is allowed. It's just like, all of the masks just have to be really grey and plain. And yeah. <laughs> And so another week of retrospecting ends. But next week begins a day early at Club Retrospectors. Join us now to get an exclusive episode every Sunday. Patreon.com slash retrospectors. Part of the ACAST Creator Network.